love for us. I thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for how patient you are with us, Lord. I do uh, just pray that you would help us to to have a high view of you, that we would uh, see you as the holy God that you are, that we would be in awe of you, Father, and that we would we would recognize our sinfulness as offense before you, Lord. I pray that we would take sin seriously, that we would be those that would be proactive and actively hunting down our sin and seeking to put it to death, Lord, and that uh, we would be not just doing that, but we would be pursuing holiness and seeking to put on righteousness, Lord, and, and grabbing hold of the resources you have so graciously given us, Father. I pray that you would help us to, uh, now as we enter into your word again, Lord, that you just help me to present these truths clearly. Father, that they would be convicting to the hearer as they've been to me as I've been studying. Lord, we know and recognize we need your Holy Spirit. We need your strength to be able to, to discern and apply these truths to our lives. I pray that we would be real about ourselves, that we would be examining ourselves, Lord, and seeking to just, once again, uh, be conformed to the image of Christ. Ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in Acts chapter 19. So over the next two weeks, yes, sir. What? Uh, I'll tell you what, we'll give you a calendar afterwards. Right now, I'm going to go ahead and start teaching the Sunday school lesson. But afterwards, we'll get you a calendar or you can ask me afterwards. All right, so Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, and I'm going to try between the next two weeks to cover through verses 21 and 41. So 21 through 41, it's a pretty big chunk, but it's, a, it's all a, a similar narrative that we're walking through. So I don't want to stall out here, but I also don't want to take too much time here, okay? And so I'm just going to kind of start... <laughs> breaking it chunk by chunk. I'm not going to read the whole text because it would probably take me just about the whole Sunday school lesson to read all, all uh, 20 verses there. But uh, so starting in verse 21, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia saying, after I, I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent uh, into Macedon uh, Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in, uh, in Asia for a while. So Erastus, man, that's just got to mention that if you're looking for a good manly name to name your kid, Erastus. It's like, I kind of want to see somebody, I, I want somebody to name their kid Erastus, because that's just, oh, right? Uh, that's a, that's a good, solid name. So this is on the heels of great success of evangelizing in Ephesus, and about two years' worth of Paul's ministry was spent in Ephesus with this. If you remember, Tyler uh, taught on how... Uh, just God was, extraordinary things were happening. Like he, he told you about the, the rags, the, the sweat rags and the articles of Paul's clothing that were even being given to people. And just by people touching them, they were being healed. Now understand that's extraordinary, right? That's not ordinary. And so there, we, a couple years ago, there was an actual local church in Maryville that was trying to sell people prayer rags where, based off of this verse where 
you could write them and say you wanted a rag. They would pray over it, and then they would send it to you, and it could kind of help you with healing or extraordinary things. Hogwash, it's, it's nothing, okay? Run away from that sort of stuff. That was extraordinary. It's, not, it's descriptive of what happened. It's not a prescription for what's supposed to be done in the church. Okay, so understand things like that. But also understand that God was using things like that to point people to the message that was being preached. Remember, Paul is taking this message to those that have not heard it, to those that still, if any of them had familiarity with Scripture, it was of the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Messiah to come. Paul is now telling them of the Messiah that did come, and that is of Jesus. And so Scripture is still being penned, so God used the extraordinary circumstances to validate the message that was being preached by the apostles and those that were going forth spreading the gospel. So the early church, right? So God was validating, using things that People could not deny this is miraculous. This is a work of God to say, listen to the message they are preaching. And God is doing this mightily in Ephesus. Like the magicians are bringing their books and throwing them in fires to be burnt up. All of this stuff that is dishonoring and displeasing to God. So when I say magician too, if you're one, like one of those people that like is like, you know, oh, let me see, I got to... Here's my finger. There it isn't, right? Uh, that's okay, all right? I'm not saying that you can't do that sort of a little thing, all right? When I said these are, these are magicians that were like calling on dark magic and trying to, and, and really, in my belief, is a lot of demonic forces were working inside those realms, all right? So this was more like a witchcraft of magicians, okay? And so these people, though, they're, they're giving up. People are giving up. Uh, these, these sinful and pagan ways, as you should when you surrender your life to Christ, right? Because if any man is in Christ, he is what? Uh, somebody said it. Say it a little louder. A new, a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have become what? New, right? And so your nature is changed when you are in Christ because the Holy Spirit comes to permanently indwell in you. And so these people, the, the fruits, the evidence of true conversion or the evidence of them being brought to true conversion is the outward change. So it's not the outward thing that's making them saved, but the outward change is evidence of what is happening inside. And so people are giving these things up. So on the heels of this, now Paul is preparing to leave the area, okay? So he's making plans to visit the churches, uh, particularly in Corinth and Philippi, and then on to Rome. And Paul has sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead to, uh, to really deliver some letters and to let the churches know about his, his visit coming up, right? So these are kind of the forerunners. It's not like my, my family and I just spent Thanksgiving up in upstate New York with the rest of my family, 
And they knew about it long ahead of time, not because we sent Paige as a forerunner uh, on her horse and buggy up, but because we used the cell phone and called them and said, hey, this is a plan we're making for a long time, and, you know, and everybody knew it was a big part of the plan, all right? So it doesn't work that way back then. He sent Timothy and Erastus to go on ahead to let them know, Paul's planning a visit. This is about when he's coming, you know, so, so we'll prepare for this. And by the way, just a side note, I kind of love how the history ties in. Go ahead and take the book of 1 Corinthians and insert it here. Because that's what Timothy's delivering when he's going to Corinth ahead of Paul. Is he's delivering this book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> and in particular, you could find, see that in 1 Corinthians 4, 17 through 21. Where he talks about his, his sending of these people and his desire to come visit them shortly. I'm looking forward to coming visit you shortly. Right? And so this is where you would insert these, a lot of these letters that are being sent out to the churches are happening really in real time in, in Acts as we're studying through this narrative. And so that really builds us up now to really uh, where I'm going to spend the rest of our time, and that is in verses 23 through 27. About that time, so at the time he sent them out, uh, about that time there occurred no small uh, dis, uh, disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of uh, Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our uh, prosperity depends upon the business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has uh, persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into uh, uh, yeah. disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be reg uh, regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be uh, dethroned from her magnificence. And so, again, <clears throat> understand those who value possessions and false beliefs will always be in opposition to God. If you wrongly value your possessions and if you hold to false beliefs, you will always, always be in opposition to God. And it's not a sometimes. If you have placed the value of your heart on the wrong things, it is competition and in opposition to God. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. Okay? No man can do this. You are either a, a servant of the world, the flesh, and the devil, or you are a servant of Christ. And honestly, we give the world and the devil way too much credit. 
Because our flesh is so often, far too many times, the reason we stumble. Actually, our flesh is the reason we stumble, right? You can't blame your sin on somebody else. Somebody else made me do it. Somebody else may have made it easier to sin, but you have sinned on your own volition, on your own will. It was your choice. You sinned. When you're tempted, you're not tempted of God. When you're tempted, you're tempted because your own lusts, your own desires, your own heart is drawn to do those things. And it's whether you give in to those things or not, right? When temptation gives, gives way, right, you, you turn to your lust and you grab a hold of it and you have entered into sin. <clears throat> so historically speaking, though, again, uh, just as Paul sent Timothy and Erastus to Corinth, a huge opposition breaks out. A silversmith named uh, Demetrius uh, and he makes most, if not all, of his profit off of making shrines or idols of Artemis, the goddess of all things living. So let's just give you a little bit of historical about Artemis. There are several variations of Artemis. There's the Roman one, which is also known as Diana, and she is more of a fertility goddess, right? And then there is the Greek one, who is uh, called Artemis, <clears throat> and Artemis only, but she is uh, not only a fertility goddess, but she's also painted as a goddess that like dances in the forest with nymphs and uh, just is over all of nature and creation too. And so, uh, but there is the Ephesus one, and that's the one we're talking about in this text. And so Artemis of Ephesus is a little different than some of the other historical Artemises that you would look at and read. And so they believe that Artemis is the illegitimate, illegitimate daughter of Zeus. Zeus's wife, uh, Her Hera, was upset with him. <coughs> uh, so he sent his mistress, Leto, away. That is the Artemis's mom. And so it's kind of like uh, if, if you envision uh, Sarah being upset with Hagar, right? And so you're sent away. And so now Leto has to go find a place to have the babies. And so uh, she goes to Ephesus, the area that Ephesus is in. And so they believe that Artemis was born in Ephesus. And so... Legend has it that Artemis was born, and then the very next day, her twin brother, Apollo, is born. And that Artemis, at one day old, helped her mother deliver her twin brother, Apollo. It's a pretty advanced one-year-old, or one-day-old, sorry, it's a pretty advanced one-year-old, too. But so that's, that's what they claim. And so as Artemis saw the pain of childbirth, she came to her father Zeus and requested really a kind of a two-fold request. And one is, is that she requested that she would be able to remain a virgin for eternity. And so uh, contrary to a lot of the gods and goddesses that were worshipped, this one actually does have somewhat of a pure uh, connotation to it as far as uh, wanting to, to maintain, maintain that virginity. And so there is a, a purity in that. 
which really does help the world want to grab to things like that, because it does seem like a better cause. But also, the other part is, is that she is the goddess of, of a, of a uh, profitable childbirth. And so, if you want to have children, you would be praying to Artemis that you'd be able to get pregnant, that you would be able to deliver the baby, the baby would survive the pregnancy, the mother would survive the pregnancy. And so some of the things that people would bring to the altar of Artemis would be uh, like, they kind of had a collection bin. And so if you had a successful delivery and your baby was healthy, the clothes, the maternity clothes that you wore, you would bring them to the donation bin, to the altar at Artemis, and you would donate those because those clothes were blessed by Artemis so that somebody else that was pregnant could wear those clothes also and be blessed and have a healthy pregnancy. And also there was a spot for those that lost their children during childbirth where they could lay those clothes at the altar as, a, as an offering to Artemis as a sign of grieving and for her to be able to comfort. So that was the primary goddess uh, Artemis that that we were looking at in the text in Ephesus. Uh, And so the shrines Demetrius made were most likely small trinkets uh, that people could carry around in their pockets or on a necklace or something like that, much like what you would think about with the crucifix in Catholicism. And so... um, Understand, Ephesus is a port city, all right? It has some rich, fertile land on one side. On the other side, it has a port. It is a place where a lot of people are passing through. And so as people are passing through, also uh, the, the temple of Artemis is one of the seven historical wonders of the world. It was amazing. Right? And so when you go to Rome, you want to go see the Colosseums. When you go to Paris, you want to see the Eiffel Tower. When you go to London, you want to see Big Ben. You know, there's these, these things that are kind of notorious, right? The Temple of Artemis was amazing. And so with so many people coming through the port city, a trade city, just so much happening, the hustle and bustle, this amazing temple that people would just travel to come and see that alone, right? Think about the trinket business. I just uh, got to be in Egypt, right? And like, we're walking through Egypt, and if you go look at my desk, I got a little tiny pyramid. It's really, if I looked closer at it, it's very misshapen, uh, <clears throat> right? But it's a little tiny pyramid made of stone. Why? Because I was in Egypt, and they got me, right? That's why. It's just this little pyramid-shaped stone that sits on my desk. It does nothing but sit on my desk. Why? Because I was there, this was awesome, and I bought something to remember my time in Egypt. Okay? And so uh, these guys, it is a tourist business, but yet it is also them selling a false god. Okay? So they are, there are people that have the religious tie to it, where they truly, you think about, they don't have the medicine we have these days. We have been... Uh, you think about some of the recent pregnancies some of the women in our church had that where the mothers or the babies would not have survived if it wasn't for the blessing that God has given us with the modern medicine that we have. And we, there has been, even with that, there has been some miraculous deliveries. But you think about those times where just the common cold could easily kill people, right? And so th- these births, these mothers are clinging to, to hope outside of medicine because there wasn't a great deal of medicine as far as what we know today. And so 
in those days, too, the more gods, the better. And so it, it's kind of like those life insurance policies where they're just clinging to whatever hope there possibly is. And so they're playing off of people's emotions. They're playing off of people's religious experience. They're playing off of people's tourism and the wealth of people flowing through. And so this is a profitable business for him to sell these shrines. And so he is making a profit off of this, and he's making a very good profit off of this. <coughs> And he also partnered with other craftsmen uh, that, that uh, had different aspects of the shrine that they would make, but also uh, he partnered with those. Uh, so even those that were in competition with them in business, like-minded men, he wanted to gather them together uh, and sit down and have a talk. Kind of the idea where... <clears throat> The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so he's, he's even gathering those competitors that he would be really trying to outsell, but now he's gathering them all together. And so uh, he gathered those that he is, has suppliers or is supplying with different things, those that are also making idols or shrines, perhaps even to other gods uh, other than Artemis that would be losing a profit because of the transforming work that is happening in Ephesus because the gospel is being preached and proclaimed. And so here is the opposition. So if, if I could paraphrase a little bit of what Demetrius's uh, pitch would have been similar to uh, with these guys, all right? And so that is uh, paraphrasing it, putting it in a little more modern words, right? He's saying, guys, we make our living off of selling shrines, and it's a good living. Sales have dropped because this guy, Paul, is telling people that no God made with humans' hands is a God at all. He's uh, driving us out of business, and it's, it, uh, it isn't just here in Ephesus. He is preaching this all over the place, so even the, those tourist sales are down. This guy has a big influence on our, our culture and we cannot um, compete, so we need to get rid of him. Listen, guys, he isn't just driving down our sails. He's attacking our God. He is turning away, uh, turning all of Asia away from her. And we have to do something about it. So I want you to notice, though, that's, that's just kind of what I envision, like if we had a meeting today, we would be talking about, right? So uh, I want you to notice, first of all, though, that the primary concern, what is the primary concern for, for this guy? The money, right? He, he mentioned the God towards the ends, but the money is the primary concern for this guy. And so uh, he doesn't also go to the council, right? He doesn't ask for the proper channels to intervene. What he's going to is other people that are, are wounded or like-minded that he can sway them emotionally. If, if he wanted legitimate resolve to this, we won't get to it today, but we'll hopefully get to it next week, where it actually is somebody that's an unbeliever, but somebody with a half a brain that steps up and says, hey guys, why don't we take this to the council? 
This is just getting crazy. Because he's, he's inciting a massive riot <coughs> is what he's doing. And so, but that's, his, that's what he wants. He doesn't want resolution. He wants to stir things up. And so Demetrius doesn't want resolution. He wants a riot or protest. This makes us, uh, this sort of mindset and attitude, though, it makes us feel justified to find others or sway others to our viewpoint. The angrier or more passionate they become, the more justified you feel. And I'm talking, I'm switching it, and I'm talking about you. Because you think about it. When you're hurt, when somebody has offended you, and sometimes even it's the truth, you usually try to find other people that feel the same way you feel, that you can complain to, and they're going to empathize, and then they're going to get upset with you. And that helps you feel justified about your disagreement, about your grievance. That helps you feel like you're in the right by finding other people that are like-minded that you can equally just upset this apple cart with, right? So, please understand and know, in this case, and in your own case, this is not the biblical way to find resolution. What is, you, you need to think about this <clears throat> when you have been offended, when something is hurting you, something somebody is doing is hurting you, the actions you take, what are the intended outcome? What is the intended outcome? For me to go to Will and complain about Dane. What do I want the outcome of that to be? Well, what I want is for Will to be upset at Dane too. That's what I want, right? But if Dane really offended me, what does the scripture say I should do? I should go to Dane and I should say, hey, that, that kind of hurt my feelings. And Dane says, oh, wow, you know, I'm sorry. And then I have won a brother and the problem is solved, and nobody else needs to know about it, right? So what's the outcome going to be? It's not really finding a resolution by me going to somebody else. That's gossip. That's slander, right? And so what about with an unbeliever? Well, really, you don't win a brother with the unbeliever, but you could win a brother as far as you demonstrating Christ-likeness and them recognizing and seeing that in repentance and faith. Right? So when, when that opposition comes from an unbeliever, how do you, what do you do? How do you respond? Well, go to that person and say, hey, that was, that was offensive or that was wrong. Uh, what you're doing is hurting me. Give them that chance to make that right. Don't go to the other neighbor and try to pit the whole neighborhood against one person, right? That's not resolution. So what's the outcome? What's the desire? Why would I go talk to this person? What do I want to happen? See, what, what uh, Demetrius should have done was he should have gone to the council. All right? It's a secular council. 
not going to pretend like there was going to be some religious result. They may have, Paul's been kicked out of a lot of cities. They may have kicked him out of the city. But the, the point is, is at the heart of this, he didn't want a peaceful resolution. He could have gone to the council. They could have had a hearing. They could have listened to Paul. They could have listened. Paul would have loved that. Paul would have loved the opportunity to sit before the leaders of the, of the city and proclaim Christ. He absolutely loved being on trial. Not that he was like some sort of bring hardship on me, but when he was on trial, he had the opportunity to present the gospel to those that were accusing or attacking or even questioning those in leadership and in authority. And so what a privilege Paul considered it to be able to present the gospel. Demetrius <coughs> did not desire an actual resolution to it. He wanted to incite a riot. Really, when you think about uh, think about it, when somebody that attacks you unjustly and how you respond, think about the supreme example of that would be Jesus Christ, and in particular, when he is nailed to a cross to die on our behalf. And those that he are actually physically there doing the job even are among those whom he is dying for. What is his cry? Is it, avenge me? Was it to... To at that moment just exercise his full deity to, to call down angels from heaven to just, I mean, he probably didn't even need to do that, right? He probably just could have gone like uh, total, just invisible, popped off the cross, uh, used his tongue and just slayed a bunch of people or just, I mean, opened up the earth and swallowed them whole. It's limitless, right? All of creation's at his disposal. He could have just said, enough, I'm done with this, whoosh. Squish it out. But instead, he had pity. I'm so grateful that he has pity on us. And he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When unbelievers attack you, especially because of your faith, because of your Christianity, your heart should be broken for them. Not offended for your sake. Right? Because we know, Christ said, if they hated me, they'll hate you also. Understand and know they first hated me. Right? This is what's going to happen. The world is not going to love Christianity. It is offensive as it is to these people. And is your heart's cry, my pride is hurt. I'm going to teach them, they don't do that to me, I'll get them back. Or is it pity and prayer for them? I'll tell you, it's hard to be angry at somebody when you're praying for them. And so for those that persecute you, for those that hurt you, for those that offend you, for those that are, have put themselves in opposition to you, pray for them. Pray earnestly for them. Don't pray that God would change them to be somebody you would like. Pray that they would recognize their need for a Savior. Don't pray. It's okay to pray for deliverance from persecution, but let that not be your, <clears throat> your main goal where if God doesn't do that, that you would think God isn't good. 
pray that God would change their heart. Because we can make the world a moral place, right? If I go preach the gospel to somebody and they repent and believe, they have eternal life. It's not something I did, it's something God did. But if I go tell somebody that they need to dress more modestly, well, now they're, they're doing a moral act that maybe I agree with that I didn't agree with before, but they're still going to die and go to hell if I didn't give them the gospel. So it's not about fixing people's personalities and characters. It's about giving them Christ because Christ does the work, right? If somebody loves Christ, they're going to be convicted, right? And God is going to continue to work in their life. So that needs to be our heart's cry, even to and especially to those that would persecute us. What a, what a great opportunity you have when somebody comes at you and they fully expect you to butt heads with them. And instead, you are humble. You don't fight back. You pray for them. And you, you try to uh, share Christ with them in a loving way. And you don't hold these things against you, against them, right? And so this very well could have been the outcome. Demetrius, he had no, but he didn't have the right motives, right? His motive was not to honor God. His motive was to honor his, himself, his own wealth, right? <clears throat> when your greatest treasure is God, the personal attacks are less personal and then you, it's really an opportunity for your to reflect Christ. To defend yourself is a futile effort because without Christ, you are actually nothing. Our hearts should be broken for those who are perishing. And if our good behavior during uh, mistreatment points others to Christ, then we can, as Paul did, rejoice in our imprisonment. You understand, Paul wrote letters from prison and he was actually excited. And he's like, hey... There's actually the, the guards here in Rome <clears throat> that have been guarding me for all this time. There's quite a few of them, paraphrasing again, okay? But quite a few of them have bent the knee to Christ. And they're actually fellow believers. And as I'm writing to you, they wanted me to greet you as brothers in Christ. They wanted me to send a greeting to you. Paul had a prison ministry, from the inside. And so he took every opportunity to present Christ. And so when we're persecuted unfairly, we need to get over our pride. Yes, it's real. Yes, times are hard. Yes, it's difficult, but we need to get over it. It's an opportunity to look like Christ. And so in whatever circumstance you are in, be content and be pursuing Christ's likeness. So if Demetrius truly wanted a peaceful resolution, he would have taken it to the proper channels to get the proper uh, authorities involved. But Demetrius wanted to uh, incite a riot. Remember, the words that were used is no small disturbance. When the light of the truth shines on the darkness and exposes the faults, there are two primary responses. There is either acknowledgement of wrong and repentance or anger <clears throat> or apathy towards the truth. 
And so two primary responses when the light of the truth shines in, right? So ladies, you could probably relate to this a little more than some of the guys. Some of the guys, you might be able to relate to this, right? So your job is to dust the house, okay? And so you've dusted the nice, glossy dining room table. And now it's got a high shine on it. You go over to the window, you pull open the curtains, and what do you see on the table as the sunlight shines in on the table? What do you see? Can anybody relate to this? Yeah, you see the dust, right? Well, it didn't look like there was dust there before, but the sunlight exposed it. When the light of God's Word shines in on your life and reveals sin, you have two primary responses. It can look differently in different ways, right? But, but one is to be broken and see that and say, yeah, you know what? That's ugly, and I need to repent from that. The other is to, to you can be apathetic towards it and just try to be numb and, and ignore it, but really even in that, you're offended by it. And uh, okay, so I think I've used this scenario several times, but it's really, really applicable. It's let's say you've done something wrong, right? You've, you've cheated on a test. You, you took a cookie when you shouldn't. Whatever the case is, you did something wrong. And now your sibling is starting to tell mom and dad. And they're telling on you. What do you want at that moment? You want them to shut up because they're making you look bad. They're getting you in trouble right? Well, the reality is they're not making you look bad. They're not getting you in trouble. They are shining the light of truth onto the situation, and you don't like it. And so you have the, the choice. You can act like Paul or, or those that have gone before us. <clears throat> you can act like a true believer and obey biblical commands and see that and say, yeah, you know what? That's right. And I take full ownership of it. I am sorry, I repent, I will pay the penalties, and I'm going to pursue to look like Christ and get over this and move on. Or you become angry at the truth. The world, do you wonder why most of the world is aggressive and angry towards Christians? Because the gospel offends. Listen, if Paul had been preaching and talking about Jesus <coughs> as another shrine they could put on their mantle at home, right alongside all the other gods, Demetrius probably would have been excited because he gets to make something more and make another profit off of it, right? But God does not share his glory with anybody else. He is a jealous God. Why? Because he is worthy of being jealous. He is perfect. He is holy. He is just. He's the creator and owner of all things. He has the right to be a jealous God. And he does not share his glory with anyone else. And so to bend the knee to Christ means you need to deny the other idols, including the idols of your heart. Do you understand that? To bend the knee to Christ means you need to deny the other idols. You don't get to have many gods when Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And so the world doesn't like that. 
That is offensive. If they, if they let you keep, it, it hurts their feelings. Why? Because they're suppressing the truth and believing a lie. And they don't want the light of the truth shined in. And when you present the gospel, you're shining the light of the truth. And it is offensive. It is hurtful. They don't want to admit that there is a God because if they admit there is a God, they have to admit there is authority over their lives that they actually should submit to and surrender to. If you're sitting here today, whether you acknowledge it or not, even if it's in the form of apathy, (coughs) the reason you have not bent the knee to Christ, I don't think anybody here is new. So I know every one of you has heard the gospel, at least from here, and I guarantee you've heard it from home. If you sit here today as an unbeliever, it's because you don't want to surrender the God of your life, yourself, to Christ. You want to be in control. The world wants to be in control. They don't want another God to tell them what to do. They want to do what feels good to you, what makes you happy. That's what you want to do. That's what changes when you have the Holy Spirit inside you. You understand, you cannot be pleasing to God if you are not saved, if you are not under the, the righteousness of Christ, if that is not applied to your account, you can't be pleasing to God. You can be sit here fooling your parents, fooling me, memorizing every Bible verse, doing amazing and quizzing, but you cannot be pleasing to God. You cannot fool Him. He demands total surrender, total submission. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but what it means is when you do sin and the light of God's truth exposes that sin, you repent. That's what made David a man after God's own heart, right? It's not that David did everything perfect. David did horrible sins. I mean, he he committed adultery, and to cover it up, he committed murder. Absolutely horrible. But when confronted, he repented. That was the difference between him and Saul. Saul tried to fight against God. Demetrius is trying to not fight against Paul. He thinks he's trying to fight against Paul, but he's trying to fight against God. And Paul can have the confidence of knowing that even if they put him to death, even to torture and death, that his God is in control, that his God is worthy of that, that his God is not going to put him through anything that is not going to be profitable for his own spiritual growth and for the gospel to go forth. And so therefore, he can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is my life's goal. And so Demetrius is the opposition to that. And so he is not seeking a peaceful resolution. He is seeking to cause a riot to disturb others. That's what we do. We gather these people in, right? <clears throat> and so in closing, what I want you to understand and what I want you to think about is how do you respond when truth exposes your sin? Do you respond like Demetrius and you try to gather other people that feel the same way you do? You try to gather your friend group or those that they even perhaps at times were enemies, but they feel the same way. And so you gather them together and you gossip about it. And you, and you develop just this justification for this anger and hatred in your heart. There's groups that 
or hate groups towards churches because they left churches and they, they have other people that left the same church and so they get together and they just gossip about the church. And you know what? Maybe the church did something wrong. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. But getting together and gossiping about it's not glorifying God. Instead, you should be praying for that church or you should be approaching the leaders of that church and saying this is something that was wrong and you need to fix it. But instead, they get together and they have these gossip sessions. Run away from those people. If you see them on social media, you hear about them popping up. This, uh, I think it's Royce, Julie Royce. Run away. It's like <clears throat> the old gossip magazines in the name of Christianity. This Royce Report stuff. And she, her big goal is to trash John MacArthur, which I'm not saying MacArthur's done everything perfect. But it, it's a gossip column. And why, why is she in business? Because there's a, there's a market for that. Because people like that. Because they want an excuse to not go to church. They want an excuse to hate the church that they left. Even though they were the ones in sin and were disciplined out. They want excuses for those things. And so they find those common bonds. So how do you respond when your sin is exposed? Do you respond like these idol makers? Defending and protecting the idols of your heart? And so you find other people to stir up to justify your feelings? How do you respond <clears throat> when you lose possessions or power? This man was losing his business. How do you respond when the things that you hold too tightly are taken away from you? Chris talked about, if you weren't in first service, you'll hear it. But he talked about how we affiliate different things with uh, needs. And really what God has said is, is we need shelter, we need clothing, we need food, right? That's what a man is supposed to provide for his family. We have the blessed privilege of being able to have more stuff. But, but really, when those things are taken from you, when people are taken from you, how to respond? Do you hold them so tightly that you fight against God when he takes them away? Or do you hold them with an open hand where if God were to take those things away from you, he is still good? You're, you're not offended or, or angry at God. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when God takes a loved one out of your life. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when your car is totaled and you just bought it and now you have a massive payment that you can't pay off. It doesn't mean that it's not anxiety or, or difficulty when a loved one is sitting in the hospital or when you're racking up hospital bills, when your pet dies. Those are all difficult things. It's not that you just ignore the difficulties of those, but it's that that's not the God of your heart. And so when your possessions, when the things you value are taken away, how do you respond? Do you become sinfully angry and go into inciting a riot? And then how do you resolve conflict? When you actually have something that has hurt you, that needs to be addressed, how do you resolve it? Do you go gossip and malign other people? Do you find other people you can tell that really don't even need to know? Ask yourself, why am I telling this person? What do I expect the results of me telling this person to be? Is it to resolution? No, then keep your mouth shut. Because you're doing damage. Go to the person that's offended you. If they don't repent, take another person. Take, take a, a second or third party, right? If they don't repent, then you take it. That's church discipline. That's the process. And here's the thing is, if it's not that big of a deal to take to church discipline then you should cover it with love. 
you should pray for that person and cover it with love, right? But nowhere is it go gossip, go find allies that feel the same way, go find people that are going to help you feel justified about your hurt feelings. If, you, if that's the primary thing in your life, then you have become a God in your competition with Christ for lordship over your own life. And so examine yourselves on those accounts. Let's pray. Father, do you thank you for your word and thank you for your day. <clears throat> I pray that you would help us, Father, to seek to bring glory and honor to you with every aspect of our lives. I pray that we would learn from people like Demetrius, like Paul, like uh, Christ, that we would be following these godly examples, that we'd be seeking to bring glory and honor to you with every aspect of our lives. Father, we know that we can't do this on our own. So I pray, Lord, that you would just help us, that we, we are a needy people. We do need help. You would help us to respond properly to things, that we would uh, have love of you as priority and primary in our lives. And that, Lord, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but we would be doers. And so we would be putting this into action now. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.